fix it. Here we Okay, man, you got it right now. You got to You know what? You don't make me feel so bad that you screwed up. Oh, uh, okay. What the okay. hell was that one, anyway, man? I don't know. You clicked. You clicked the other one that totally is not even in the realm of the area. But that's okay. It's okay. It happens. You're on WMMRDB right now. Well, you got the Hollywood and Mike show again. We're gonna be having a special guest today. It's gonna be cool. Uh, hearing from him, he's been on the show uh, on uh, Insane Throttle, but he is now on this one on a couple different channels. We got him finally live on the radio. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. He is a really intelligent guy that has really led a awesome type of life. What do you think about that, Mike? He's really done a lot of stuff. He's he's done probably like what I would say is doing it all. You know what I mean? You start from, you know, really the bottom and you learn kind of like almost like these different subcultures along the way. And I'm kind of very much a similar person. So that that's what kind of like what me and Mooch definitely connect on is mm. I love watching the subcultures and what he's gone through. Um, granted, I have not read his brand new book or anything like that. And I, I can't wait to, um, but I do know that he talks about from, you know, the gang life to motorcycle club life to social life, you know, meaning social work life. So mm. it's, it's really incredible to see what, um, you know, people's stories are and he's definitely got one. Well, I'll tell you what, man, you've been getting a lot of good ones on for the Sunday show as far as personal stories, personal, uh, types of achievements. And he's really achieved a lot, man. Uh, within the club scene, within his personal life, uh, he's all into that uh, karate stuff or ninjutsu. Jiu-jitsu. that yeah, man right there. I the, last thing I want to do is fight the dude. Okay, forget about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -uh. I, the only yeah. chance I got is is I, I got my leg. I can swing and try to kick him, but he most definitely is going to grab me, put me in an arm bar with probably my own leg somehow. You know, it would, off, like, yeah, it would off. totally suck. You yeah. know what them jujitsu guys, you just like, it's a Mike Tyson. Somebody paid me a million dollars to fight him. I just bring a 12 gauge. It's easier that way <laughs> uh, to do that. But yep. writing, writing a book is a big accomplishment. It is hard as hell to just sit at a computer and try to write it. Or it's hard to convey a story to somebody to ghost write it for you so that's a huge accomplishment for a lot of people and i can bet that uh, mooch never thought would think he would have got to that point where he was actually able to tell a story and get an audience to read about it because you know books are a tricky business and he was able to achieve that and you got to give him props for that Absolutely. You know, it's when you're writing a book, not that I have either, but that I do know uh, from the friends that have, including yourself, that write, you know, um, books, it's not easy. It's not like you just have this template that's super easy to just go off of. You've got to sit there and try to 
you know, your own mind, you have to put it onto paper somehow and, and convey a very good story that people are going to stay in tune with. That's going to be hard to do. So it's, it's kind of like you just have this blank slate. Yeah. It's it's a blank, yeah, it is a blank slate uh, for him to write a book, but I, you know what? I'm really interested in his lift train ride. It's kind of a movement right now. And it's something that we haven't seen in the scene before so it's actually kind of like wow man somebody came up with something that hasn't been done before you know you got a lot of people that do vet stuff do this kind of charity stuff but this is actually something that really helps the mind and body that's something that hasn't ever been done yeah doing something like that is is i can only see as a major beneficial uh for everybody you know and i'd love for Moose to come on in and, and talk about it. Go for it. Bring them in, man. Let's do it. We've got the West man, the myth, the legend. Mooch. Got the mooch on, man. Thanks How for all the kind work, guys. Appreciate it. No problem, man. We're going to get dig deep into who Mooch is right now. And again, uh, his book, let's put it up in uh, the chat room right yep. now. Let's get it out there. I it's uh, available on Amazon, and I'm guessing all your major online retailers as well. Yes, sir. I, I, I actually seen that big ass smile you had on Instagram, man. When you put up a billboard and stuff, that was pretty cool. Yeah, one of the local uh, local businesses sponsored a billboard, so I had a billboard up in town, and that was a pretty surreal feeling. Pretty dang cool. So yeah, it was really awesome. That's pretty cool, man. Being on a billboard. Did you ever think you'd be on a billboard, dude? Like uh, maybe the most wanted or something. <laughs> maybe <laughs> but, on the FBI's most wanted or something for sure. But no, yeah, not but... not in a positive light. It was, it was like I said, it was a real surreal moment. It was it's it's really cool. Well, let's start out about let's learn who Mooch is. Let's start out. Say at the beginning of your book, not giving away all the details and stuff, but your journey to where you are now. Let's start out with that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of start out like where any life story does, talking about my family and my upbringing. And I I think one of the things that's a little different for me than some of these other books you may read is that I actually had a really good middle class family. You know, we're we're tight knit Italian family. Most of my family members are teachers and athletic coaches. so I didn't have that like broken home aspect that, you know, a lot of people think of when they think of younger kids getting into gangs and stuff like that. Um, I grew up with an identical twin brother. It was also, we played every sport imaginable, uh, but really got into wrestling and we ended up going to different high schools so that my mom was hoping we had, I kind of established our own identities, which clearly didn't work out if anyone <laughs> knows my story, but, um, but yeah, I had a really good, up, really good upbringing band. And, and you know, I, I got into the punk rock music scene and that's kind of what got me into like the anti-racist skinhead gangs and stuff like that. But I kind of picked, I, I chose my own path and maybe it wasn't always the best choices, but I definitely wasn't like forced. I wasn't in that struggle that a lot of people have, you know? Well, let's talk about the punk rock scene. A lot of people, especially in our scene, don't know what the punk rock scene is. Why don't you give them a little bit of a taste? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, I, I used to stay with my aunt on the, during the summertime and she, she's kind of an old hippie, but she was really into music and she used to wake me up to like the clash and the Ramones, um, you know, some madness. And so I really got into those bands early on before, you know, before a lot of people knew what that stuff was. I was in probably sixth grade. Um, and I think seventh or eighth grade, that band Rancid came out and I was obsessed because they sounded like the clash. Um, and I just kind of started going down that rabbit hole. And thankfully the area I grew up in Portland had a lot of great bands, Poison Idea, Defiance. So, yep. um, you know, I was really immersed in that culture and I just started going to 
punk rock shows and all ages concerts and, you know, showing up and meeting people. And so that just really sucked me in early on. Is it a tight knit community within the punk rock scene? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure city by city is a little different, but as far as like street punk goes and stuff like that, everyone pretty much knows each other. We back then, this was pre-internet, right? So you have to know somebody to put on a show and usually at somebody else's house. And then we'd all hand make flyers and put them up together. So it was a real community vibe. Absolutely. Man, that's, that sounds pretty cool, right? It was there. pretty badass. I'm definitely happy I was able to experience it, especially, you know, my band ended up touring. So there was five of us living in a van, traveling the country, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, just a bunch of kids driving around, you know, playing concerts every night, partying every night. It was pretty badass. So were you in, you were in a band then you just said. Yeah. In 2000, I started a band called the escaped. Um, and we put out three different records on some just mid-sized record labels. Um, but we played like CBGB's in New York. We played Gilman street in Oakland. We did some warp tours. We played the rock and roll hall of fame, warp tour one year. Um, so we got to do a lot of really cool stuff, you know? And like I said, that it's kind of crazy looking back on, cause this was pre-internet. So you can't just upload a song. If you want people to hear your right. music, you got to go play, you got to tour. Um, and so we just toured. We worked really, really hard. And, you know, I'm a bit of a networker, so I did really good at just reaching out to venues and people and bands and seeing what we could do to get on the road. And uh, some support from friends and family, we were able to do it. And, and we did it for five years. How was it living uh, in a van? Well, the- you know, we're, it, I wouldn't be able to do it now. <laughs> but when you're, when you're you know, 19, 20 years old, it wasn't too bad. And essentially, the last three years, we were touring full time. We'd be on the road two months, home for a month. So we actually all rented a house together, too um before cost of living in portland went crazy so we spent probably too much time with each other but like i said we were we were young kids you know no one had wives and kids yet no one had full-time jobs so it for for where we were in our life it worked out really well do you think that's why bands break up is because they're with each other all the time i think that's why relationships break up (laughs) bands break up everyone everyone needs to have their own peace and quiet from time to time some separate time whether it's your partner or your best friend or you know bandmates and so being, you know, living on the road in, you know, pretty, pretty dire conditions, you know, not a lot of money and hungry, tired and you see the same guy day in, day out. And then you get back to your house and it's the same person. Next thing you know, you're fighting about trash and dishes and everything else. Well, so. the guy's eating the Funyuns the same exact way every single night. And it just kills me Absolutely. watching that freaking guy eat those. Freak- no, I know. Trust me. When you're in tight quarters and you're traveling, man, and then. <laughs> You well, just around too many people like that. You take, yeah. a week, you take a week off and get back together. And it's like nothing ever happened. And that's your best bud and you're ready to do it. So that, that I think that downtime is always important. But you've sure. got like five different, four or five different personalities at a time. You've got, you know, four or five different, you know, outlooks on whether it be politics, it could be anything. And so, yeah, that's, that's usually why bands you break up and stuff. There's usually a lot of that. So you're, you're touring the country and stuff uh, with the same people. How was the party? Come Man, on. back then I was clean and sober, but I still I still would be at all the parties, <laughs> and they were they were awesome as you can imagine. So normally, you know, these are like they're smaller venues, punk rock shows. So a lot of times they couldn't afford hotel rooms, but they would find you a place to stay. So usually it'd be with, with with one of the other bands or the local party house. Um, so you know, pretty cramped quarters in the basement or on the couch. But in the meantime, it's where everyone went after the show. So you know, we'd have this big concert, which was pretty much a party. And then we go to someone's house and have this big after party, and that I mean that was pretty much nightly. Well, he's uh, married now, so I ain't going to bring the other kind of party enough. But uh, <laughs> Hand of Chaos uh, says, and I wonder if you know any of these, Mooch, uh, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Misfits. Uh, that's what he thinks of. Check it out. Uh, I got every sing- yeah, every single <laughs> one of them. 
I just saw the Misfits actually. So my, my wife's not from that scene at all. And so, you know, over the years, I've been kind of introducing her to it. And the Misfits just did a reunion show in New Jersey a few months ago with all original members. And her and I went out there to it. And it was awesome. That's cool. So That's are you cool. still into that uh, type of music or have you uh, moved on to different? You know, I've kind of always listened to everything, but that's definitely still something I'll listen to like when I'm working out or just, you know, just to reminisce. Um, I mainly, and even growing up, I mainly into more like Motown and soul and like, you know, Northern soul and oldies and stuff like that. Um, but I still listen to quite a bit of hardcore and punk rock for sure. Rock on, man. So you were in the punk rock scene. Then where did you go? Yeah. So from that punk rock scene, I got introduced to um, anti-racist skinheads, which you know, I, a lot of people don't know about, um, you know, I've, I've explained it a few times on some different shows, but essentially it was, you know, the skinhead movement was just like the punk rock movement where it was guys that were into certain fashion and certain music or guys and girls. Um, and there was no politics involved, but by the time I was involved in it, it was pretty synonymous with racism and Portland had a really big white power skinhead scene. So it was a bunch of guys banding together to keep the, the neo-Nazis out of our scene, keep them away from our concerts. Um, and so, you know, it was a pretty, pretty violent, uh, lifestyle. And we pretty much ran like a street gang other than we weren't making financial gain. But other than that, I mean, we were a neighborhood neighborhood gang that tried to keep our community safe from, from you know, neo-Nazi skinheads. Well, let's uh, bring that up because we brought that up on uh, with Big Bone and stuff. Yeah, we did. I'm one of the biggest anti-freaking Hitler. Uh, you know what? A lot of people, I come from a different angle because of uh, the war type of deal where there was 60 million people that died because of that son of a, you know what? Uh, and I can't actually understand why people would look to him and you being into the anti skinhead stuff. Why do you think they would look to a bastard like that? You know what? I think a lot of it is, is it's just like, whether it's clubs or gangs or whatever, it's people you grew up around and, and people finding somewhere that where they feel acknowledged or fit in. So I, I would love to say, or I would like to believe that a lot of these young kids didn't have that ideology or that belief, but because that was where they fit in or they felt respected, they have adopted that. That would make more sense to me than some young kids saying that he had all these crazy right-wing beliefs. Right, that he naturally had that hate or whatever in his heart, and then all of a sudden, no, I think you're right on that. I think for sure they need recognition that they feel like they've been, you know, fit in somewhere. Absolutely. Now you grew up in Portland. How is Portland unique compared to the rest of the United States? Because you did have a lot of good damn bands come out of Portland. Yeah, man. Portland was really cool because it, it wasn't quite big enough to be a big city. So we had a real small town vibe. Like I said, everyone knew each other. Um, and back then it was, you know, it was a lot cheaper to live there. So, you know, we had like all, all these different punk rock houses where a bunch of punks and skinheads lived together. And so the party scene was big. Um, you know, early on, like I said, there, there was a lot of white power skinheads there. There was a lot of there's a lot of historic racism in Oregon. But now when you hear Portland, you think of like left wing hippie and Tifa. Totally. You know what I mean? So I, I think they've always kind of been high on the radar when it comes to politics. And it's a, just a political city in general. But it's a, there's also laced in there with so much of that, like laid back northwest hippie you know, kind of hippie vibe. Just too, good where, vi it's just good weed there. You know, that's probably yeah, what it is. Probably, good weed. probably. And there's just so much cool stuff to do as far as nature goes, right? There, there's the mountains are an hour away. The coast is an hour away. There's yep. hikings and rivers. And so there's a, that whole, like, just kind of that peaceful atmosphere, peaceful vibe for the most part. Well, you had grunge that started out that way, didn't you? Yeah. Up in Seattle, but I mean, the, the same overlap, right? It's a couple hours away. So for sure. Yep. That bar, okay. Satyricon, we used to play at is where uh, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love met, I guess. It was a little before my time, but same bar. Right. 
Well, I remember flying into Portland. You guys need a bigger airport, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, for is, sure. it is beautiful over there because uh, I would go over into Washington and stuff for the kids. But uh, Portland is something uh, unique, I can tell you that. And I can only imagine uh, how it was growing up there, especially with the music scene and stuff. Uh, good stuff out there, man. Uh, how was Portland different than, say, where you moved uh, to the Midwest? Man, when I'm out here in the Midwest, it's a pretty small town. I'd say that the closest is St. Louis, which is about an hour from me, which honestly was pretty similar to Oregon. In fact, that I lived when I grew up in Oregon, I was about an hour south of Portland until I, you know, graduated, moved up to Portland. So I think there's a lot of similarities there where I'm used to like just commute into town, do all the fun in town stuff, but actually go back <laughs> to my small little town yeah. afterwards and have some some, some rest. <laughs> um, but the, the biggest difference I've noticed, especially with my age, is food, man. The, the West Coast and Oregon has amazing food. They're known for all their food carts and, you know, all sorts of healthy food and different varieties of food where Midwest, it's fried and covered in cheese sauce. <laughs> yeah, I was just in Portland uh, not even a year ago. And yeah, the food there is insane. Like it's everywhere incredible. you go, it's incredible where what you can get there. Yeah, you still can't get uh, like Chicago, but uh, we'll give them that one. But uh, so we move from the punk rock scene into the anti skinhead scene. And where did you go? What did you learn from that scene? Man, I learned a lot because, like I said, it was pretty gang oriented. So I learned a lot about leadership, about brotherhood. Um, you know, the, the crew I was in, if you made any mistakes or, or you know, something, if you're, and from, if you're from the club life, you'd understand, but it'd be like a fine or whatever. Well, in, in the gang world, you get jumped or beat up or it's 10, five minutes out back or whatever. Um, so I learned a lot about what I liked and didn't like. I learned about what type of leadership was helpful versus what wasn't. Um, even in the band, you know, I, I was the manager of the band and ran the band. And, and looking back, my band members would say we were pretty much a gang. You ran our band like a gang. So I've kind of always had that like militant perspective um strict kind of strict leadership but i learned a lot of that in in that skinhead world um it taught me a lot you know i mean this isn't super positive but it taught me a lot about violence and how to you know carry out violence and get away with different things um and i'm not saying that to, to you know to sound like it's a positive by any means but i just learned a lot in that in that regard um and i learned about who i could trust and who i couldn't and that was a, that was a really big part what lessons did you take from that part of your life until now well, I took a lot of it into the motorcycle club world as far as leadership, brotherhood, uh, being there for each other. But one of the biggest takeaways for me was, like I said, if, if you got in trouble or someone was mad or just power trip, you know, I was never comfortable around my older friends because we we're all drinking and stuff. You never knew who's going to want to fight who. And we were all fighting each other all the time. And when I first started to hang out with the motorcycle clubs, the, the few that I hung around with um, had rules where they said there's no no two things brothers can't sit down and talk about brothers should never put hands on brothers and that's what really attracted me to those clubs that I came around because I I was from the opposite and I saw that you know I, I didn't see a lot of positives from friends fighting friends even though I know the old adage is well shake hands and have a beer after but I saw how much resentment and grudges that people hold um, so kind of graduating up and, and seeing what I liked and didn't like helped me a lot when I got into the motorcycle club world you just said uh graduated up what got you into motorcycling before the club stuff so we rode vespas in the skinhead scene right so we were all on scooters <laughs> cruising around love town. that i and, need a uh, yeah. they, were, they were like not like i had a 1963 vespa 150 super we put like a one how are you gonna leave it. that out of the story man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a funny picture on my social media of me and my twin brother um 
but, but you know, was already kind of toiling around. And then some of the older guys were getting like cafe bikes and sport bikes. And one of the older guys um, got on and was riding Harleys and he kept talking and ride it. And so I on it, rode around the block and took it after that. Well, we got a little uh, technical on uh, Mooch's end right now. No worries. Uh, the internet coming up. Uh, he'll be uh, getting that back. He froze right there. Uh, but uh, Vespa's, I need a picture of that, Mike. I do, too. I do, too. He says it's up there, so we got to find it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Are you there, Mooch, or are you still frozen up, man? Um, I was in rent. I'm good here. He's 8-bit he's right now. He sounds like he's from, like, Super Mario Brothers or something. <laughs> yeah it's all right let's see if i if i pull him out for a sec let's see if it re- there we go yep there we go with the back uh but go ahead uh, mooch yeah so some of some of the older guys uh you know were graduating up to like sport bikes and cafe racers are really big in portland you know the old hondas and stuff yep. um and so then i one of the older guys got a harley heritage and kept talking me into riding it one day and i uh, took it for a ride around the block and i don't think i ever got off oh man what was the motorcycle cycle uh, scene like in Portland? It's totally different than most of the country. Man, it's, you know, looking back, I'm very grateful that I came up in that scene because, you know, it's one of the few places left in the country where there's like th- only three or four clubs and they've all been there since like the 50s and 60s. And by the time I was there, they were all getting along with each other and coexisting. Um, but very old school vibes, very old, you know, there's a several other clubs that have been there for a long time just learning about old school history was very cool i bet man i bet on the west coast especially like that it's it's different you know like especially on the west coast being in a city where it's like only like three clubs that's very rare like you know how it is in southern california you know you got 350 clubs in one coc you know it's like jesus compared yeah, it's a big difference, and that's something I didn't notice until I moved to other places, you know, because when you grow up like that, you just think that's how it is, you know? Right. Did you think, uh, does the punk rock scene at any way parallel what the bike scene's like? You know, it definitely does now. There's a ton of overlap, especially from more like the hardcore scene, but some of the older crews, like, you know, FSU was a big old old crew back then. A lot of them are now members of the Outlaws, and some of the, there were some of the original guys of FSU you know, guys from the Northern California hardcore scene went with the Angels. So kind of depending on where you lived, a lot of guys made that progression for sure. So was it a progression from uh, being an anti-skinhead, as you said, uh, was more like a gang, to learning about what clubs were like for you? How did you go about learning about them? So I started hanging out with this old school club called the Outsiders, who, um, you know, have two chapters in the Northwest, but have been there forever. They were one of the original Portland clubs. Um and a lot of those guys, even their original members, were still around in some capacity. So, you know, um, I talk about it a bit in my book, but, you know, I met I met one of the younger members and spent some time with him until he, would, you know, trusted me enough to bring me around. And he'd bring me and my brother to their clubhouse and I'd sit around and hear all these old school stories and Portland history and learn a lot about just motorcycle protocol in general. Um, but I got to hear it firsthand from these, you know, old school guys that have been living it for a long time. That must have been you know, mind blowing here and enticing you, you probably with your mindset at that time, especially you're probably going, man, this is exactly what I want to hear right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, you know, there's, there's that kind of stigma or, or I guess in a more positive way, just kind of that aura of you when you don't know much about motorcycle clubs, 
and then you finally meet one, you know, might as well have met a hell's angel or anything else. Because to me, this was like the pinnacle, right? Like, man, right. I'm meeting, I'm meeting these outlaw bikers. This is some crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to touch base and learn from them firsthand, that went a long way with me for sure. So was that first ride on that Harley, what got you into a Harley? Do you think if they gave you a, you know, a ride on say a Suzuki or a Honda that you would, uh, got more into the Honda Suzuki scene? No, because I, I did ride some sport bikes before that. And, you know, to date right now, I've had 29 different bikes and I've ridden, you know, pretty much anything, sport bikes. And I like a lot of adventure bikes and sport bikes and off-road bikes, but I've never had the same feeling that I have when I'm on a Harley. You know, that there's nothing, there's other bikes that probably make their, you know, more mechanically sound and make more power. But as far as like having that personality and feeling that that fit to that lifestyle, I don't think anything comes close to a Harley. I and agree. You, I you think, you know, you? What's that? You went and got a Dyna, didn't you? I have the Lowrider ST now, but yeah, I had, oh, I had FXRs and Dynas. He went then. all fancy, man. Like when I saw him post up his, his ST, I was like, man, must be nice. Must be nice. <laughs> you know, what's funny is we spent years in those early years trying to build a Dyna that style, right? That, that looked like just like fairing. that. Yeah. You know, we were, we were buying repop. We were, we were buying old, trying to find the old FXRT fairings. Yes. Those old clamshell bags. And, you know, we went through so much time and money to try and find that stuff that now that one comes out stock like that, I, I, I had to get it. <laughs> it was mind blowing for a lot of us. We were like, man, do you know how long we've been trying to build bikes like this? And now finally you're making it like, yeah, absolutely. Right, cool. That's it's funny to me when I see people bag on the clamshells or that fairing or whatever, just because I know that scene and we knew how hard those were to get and how that was like the holy grail of parts back then. You know, mm-hmm. what have you done to your bike so far? Um, just all the little stuff, exhaust, intake, seat, bars. Uh, I put a, that new Baja headlight on there, which is sick. Cause I'm old and I can't see well at night anymore. Uh, <laughs> but just kind of more of the cosmetic type stuff. It's the, the 117 is a ripper already. And, you know, I'll probably do a cam in it at some point only because one of the other guys did, and I want to make sure I can keep up, but otherwise, you know, <laughs> motor-wise, it's always, it's always coming down to that. Yep. Absolutely. And with that, with the amount of miles I try and ride and put on, I don't like messing with motor stuff too much for reliability purposes. So I mainly do more cosmetic type stuff. Steve uh, brought up Dyna Bro. Are you a Dyna Bro, Mooch? So I I was, I was pretty into Dynas, like FXRs and Dynas for a long time. And I created a Facebook group called the Dyna Mob, which got really popular there for a while. And now that seems huge. Um, See, that's a Dyna Bro right there. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's funny is when I, when I joined the Mongols, they were still riding like heritages and and, uh, street glides. And so I'd come around, there was a couple other guys, uh, bouncer and monster that had had you know club style dinas and everyone called them angel bikes and so we were the white guys from oregon riding these angel bikes um <laughs> so you know we caught a lot of flack so when i tried to do that dynamo i was actually trying to get like the other mongols and other club guys that rode those style bikes kind of connected oh that's cool rock like on that. man. I that's that. some, uh, good stuff right there uh but 117 uh did you have it flashed uh when you got the uh exhaust changed that was from nitro yeah, I did. Um, I've read a lot on both ways about that M8, if you really need to do it or not. Um, but I, I bought that, the new programmable Harley tuner. It's a lot like the Vansine fuel pack. There it is better right. safe than yeah. sorry. And, and that way I can still update and change stuff. Oh, okay. Fucking A. Uh, let's go uh, further now. Uh, you got onto the bikes. You talked to a lot of old school members uh, with the outsiders. Where did you go from there? What really hooked you? Well, so, uh, you know, like I said, I was really enamored by that lifestyle. And so when they offered me a chance to start prospecting for the outsiders, I, I jumped at it. Um, 
I'm an impulsive guy and I'm not making any excuses. Got a great time there, but you know, I'm a young kid. I was really looking up to it. So I was, I was all in. So I said, yes. And I started prospecting. Um, and, and you know, that, that was the only club I did prospect for. I'll just put that out there. And I learned a lot from it. I actually, actually liked it because I learned so much from it. Um, but what I also learned, you know, a couple months into it is I remember sitting in there, um, kind of looking around at the clubhouse and these kind of older guys, they're listening to some classic rock on the radio. And I was talking about my buddy from my band, his nickname was fishnets. And they were like, we're not calling them that. And, and it kind of clicked to me that there was the only thing that I had in common with these guys in this room was this patch, you know, mm-hmm. motorcycles, but we were from different eras, different generations. And these aren't people that I would probably like call up to go see a movie or barbecue with, um, and, and that I brought that with me when I went to other clubs is like trying to find a group of best friends that I would hang out with, with or without the patch. Well, you know what? We got a special treat here that we're going to show. And this comes directly from Mooch's Instagram account. There we <laughs> go. What, what yeah. is going on? I think we're getting ready to race big wheels right there. <laughs> That's what's up. Is that your twin? Yep. Yep. Again, OG Mooch's uh, Instagram is OG bottom. Uh, what is that? Underscore, uh, underscore. Underscore Mooch. And then there's the Vespa. There it is. It's me and my <laughs> 150 Super. <laughs> yeah. Bitch. No, I've been down for a while. I had the tall socks back then, too. <laughs> hey, the sock cold. check. But yep. uh, you brought up something very interesting just now, and that is not having a lot in common with a different generation of bikers. Do you think that's an issue where at certain point some guy should just say, you know what, I'm old and maybe I should retire out because I have nothing in common with the younger kids? I think everyone has a place for sure. If it comes to leadership, that might be something that I think they should consider. But I also think it's awesome to have those old school dudes in the clubhouse or at the parties being able to tell, you know, there's a big difference in telling those cool old stories versus saying it still needs to be like this. So finding that, you know, agreeing with the evolution, but still having the historian there to tell you like, here's how it used to be. Here's what we went through to get here. Um, Cause I've always held those dudes in the highest regards because, you know, they're the ones that help pave the way for the rest of us. So Mm. I I do think having their presence and having them around is awesome. But I also think there's that boundary of, you know, are they, are they calling shots and trying to make things like the old ways or are they moving forward? Mm. Yeah. One of the reasons why you left the outsiders. Well, yeah. And then I had a lot of just personal stuff in my life going on, which I speak about in the book a little bit. And and I was just looking for a change. I had, I had left that, the skinhead gang. Um, And, you know, that that was pretty much what I knew in that area. So I really thought I'd have a fresh start moving, starting somewhere else. Um, And, and I was managing a porn store at the time. I'd managed this porn store for five years. I, you know, I was in a band forever, so I didn't have any marketable skills and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was offered a job at a gas company in Carson city, Nevada, where my cousin lives. So I figured, you know what, I'm gonna go down here learn a trade. Um, and just try and, you know, I was a young kid trying to, trying to figure out my path. How was that move, uh, down to Nevada? How, what did you learn by leaving what you were used to? Uh, well, I learned a lot about myself being, cause so my cousin's female, so I didn't have like male friends down there. I had to make new friends, um, figure out who's who in the area, what places were cool. Um, but you know, so I learned a lot about just being on my own, like being an identical twin. I'd always had somebody there with me to do stuff, touring the band. I had my band. So this was the first time I really set out on my own. Um, so it was a really good learning experience for me as far as what am I capable of? You know, how hard can I push myself? You know, try, I tried a couple different careers. 
Um, and I, and I honestly, for, for a motorcycle rider, that area is one of the best places to live. You know, you got Lake Tahoe, Virginia City, Reen, everything's right there. So it, for the, that time of my life, it worked out really well. So you still were riding at that point? Yeah, I didn't even have a car for like 10 years. All I had was motorcycles. Yeah, you were all motorcycle there for a long, long time, right? Yeah, I, mean, I you, think 10 years I went with But you with never really have stopped riding since then, right? You've Absolutely. kind of all of, no, you've been I, consistent ever I joined since. a motorcycle club because I love motorcycles. And, and that's first and foremost what brought me into motorcycle clubs. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I was in a gang and I've been in a band. So obviously I like to join. I can't, I'm not going <laughs> to deny that part. Right. But it, but it was because of my love for motorcycles that brought me into that world. You brought up something very interesting and something a lot of kids don't know these days. And I think it's one of the most important things that they can learn is you brought up a trade. You know, most kids are gunned in high school to go to college where the trades are really neglected. How important it is for a kid to learn a trade now? I think any sort of marketable skill is the most important part, right? Like nowadays, some of those trades might be stuff to do with, you know, internet and programming and stuff that's well above me. But, you know, in Portland, it was a, a really heavy union town. So it was a, like everyone I know that was successful were, were in some sort of labor union or, you know, or iron workers or so they, they, were, they were all in trades. And I had tried, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that young age. I barely got through high school. So I tried like one day of college and I was like, this isn't for me. Um, which is funny considering where my path went later. But at the time, um, and I, you know, I was like, well, school's not for me. I had a felony as soon as I turned 18. And so, you know, I couldn't get into the military. So I was really trying to find my path. And I really thought that learning a trade was going to be the thing that helped me really get into that, you know, into a more consistent lifestyle. Is that something you recommend as a social worker now? I think, just what I always recommend is looking at your strengths. What, what, what are you good at? What, what would you like to do? Um, you know, something that you can do day in and day out and feel satisfaction when you get home or, or especially for those of us that have been burnt out things that where you can turn it off when you leave. So um, I think there's different paths for different people. And I think really focusing on your strengths is what's going to be the important part. Some people are great academically and going to go to school and succeed and do a great job. And others, you know, can learn a trade or a skill somewhere else and be marketable there. So I think it really depends on the person. Yeah, that's exactly the route I took. I took the trade route right out of school. I mean, like basically from graduation, I was working out at sea on a trade, you know, and that was what I had done all the way up until my leg got severed. So unfortunately, can't go back to that. But nonetheless, you know, the trade was definitely the the route I went because I was like you had just said, I kind of barely got through high school and it wasn't because I didn't want to. It was just because. I really didn't care about what they were trying to teach me uh, aside Absolutely. from like math, like the, 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 the stuff that I knew, like history. I hated when they tried to teach me history. It's Americanized anyways. You know what I mean? Like I, I wanted to learn like math and then I was teaching guitar as like, like a guitar class for an actual like English class and an actual history class, you know? And so that, that's, that's me getting barely through, you know, school myself. <laughs> yeah. And mine, mine was really similar. It wasn't necessarily that I got bad grades when I focused. It was just, I didn't see the importance that I was so focused on moving to Portland and being in a band and doing this punk rock stuff that I, I wasn't career oriented or career focused. Right. Mm -hmm. Now let's move on. You went to Nevada and you were learning about who you were as a person. 
and it was in Carson City, and that's not Las Vegas, everybody, because everybody, when they hear Nevada, they think Las Vegas. This is Carson City. And you were already in the Outsiders. It sounds like you left them. What was the next step for you in the club life? So initially they let me leave on what they call the inactive prospect status because I was gone for work. So if I was only going to be gone for a little while, I could come back and pick up where I left off. And they're, you know, those old school clubs have a real tight brotherhood with other old school clubs. So they sent me some references to some other clubs down there that I might be interested to hang out with, you know, make oh. friendships with. So, you know, I, I wasn't down there long before I was trying to find other people to ride with. I was, but, you know, like we were talking about the cultural differences, I go to Nevada and there's like 12 different clubs there, you know, and, you know, the angels were there as booze fighters. I mean, you know, Vagos were, were big there. So I was trying to learn the lay of the land. And I remember I uh, accepted an invitation from the booze fighters to ride up to a COC because I figured if I go to the COC, I'll see all the clubs in the area, meet some people, shake some hands, um, which I did. And I had a good time. And I went up to some of these clubs that the outsiders had told me to hit up. And they just, you know, I'm a, I was a young kid, I think 23, 24 years old, um, that no one seemed interested in, in hanging out with me. They were just like, oh, cool. Yeah, nice to meet you. And they, and they, and they took off. So the booze fighters had invited me to this bar. And this is, like I said, pre, pre-MapQuest type stuff, really, or at least pre-navigation. And they gave me one of those three stoplights, take a right, you know, type of directions. Um, and they want, they were waiting for me, but I was waiting to talk to the, the righteous ones, try and get to know those guys. And, and so I'm hanging out at the COC and everyone had left. And I was like, well, I still want to hang out with somebody. So I'll go find these booze fighters. And so I'm going down, um, what is it, 6th Street, the big one there in Reno, where all the biker bars used to be. And every club kind of had their own bar on that street, which I didn't know at the time, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I see I see a group of green, and I assume it's booze fighters. So I pull in, and as I'm pulling in, I have to pass two prospects that are standing guard, and it's all barricades. And as soon as I pull in, I realize these aren't booze fighters, these are Vagos. But I don't want to just turn around and pull out. So right. <laughs> Backed my bike to the curb, took a deep breath, and walked in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool way to be introduced like that. Just be thrown right into it yourself. Well, and because I wasn't wearing a patch or anything back then, I, I would wear a, a sleeveless denim over a leather jacket. It was kind of that hipster look. So here I am. And and the first thing I thought of is these guys are going to think I'm trying to look like them, you know, because there's no there was no Vagos in the part of Oregon I was in. Um, they were down in southern Oregon. So I'd never really seen Vagos before. And the first thing I saw was, oh, they wear denim. I'm wearing denim. I just walked into their bar, <laughs> you know. So, um, but it ended up working out really well, and I met quite a few of them and made a lot of connections. Um, and and what really struck me is, so their their chapter president, Awful Al, had come up to me and, man, I wasn't drinking at the time, but I wasn't sure if I was going to get jumped, right? So I bought a bottle of beer and just went and sat in the corner. Um, and he came up and started shooting the breeze with me, and I was telling him how I just moved here for this new job and he started calling and checking on me pretty often. Like my very first day of work, I had a voice mail from Al saying, Hey, how was work? How did it go? And so when I'm in an area where I didn't know many people and it was just me and a, you know, a family member that went a long way with me. So I started going up and spending evenings with Al having dinner with him and his family and eventually started riding around with, with those guys. Um, and I ended up joining the Vagos. I ended up, Al started his own chapter. He was branching off from Reno and starting a chapter called border town. And he asked me if I'd be interested in, in joining. So and one of the big differences, too, which I think I talk about in my book a little bit, too, is, you know, Oregon, like I said, it's a very old school motorcycle scene. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all, but it's just a different culture where the Vagos and stuff I met in Reno were closer to my age. Um, you know, there there was some guys from like the skateboard and punk rock scene. Um, Mike, you'll know uh, Bobby Adams from Seven Seconds. I ended up I actually 
I'm actually the one that sponsored him to join the Vagos, but he used to kick it. That's um, so there was this overlap of like punk rock dudes, especially in Cal- Southern California. There was more people like me in that club. So I felt more connected and resonated with it more. We'll get to that one. Uh, China Dow about Mooch was in a movie and uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, but how important was, because a lot of people don't understand this one, is hanging around with somebody, getting getting to know them and not just jumping in. Absolutely the most important part. And, and you know, the more years I spent in the club world, the more I would try and impress that upon the hangarounds. Um, you know, everyone's excited. And, and so when you're that excited and your mind's made up, you're like, let me join, let me join. I'm ready to prospect, I'm ready to prospect. But I've seen so many people do that because you know you're you're enamored and you're you're only focusing on the good and you're missing the things that might not be a good fit for you. The you know the the all all of the stuff that comes with it on both sides of the coin. You don't really get to see unless you're hanging out. Yep. Mm-hmm. And hang around you... for a little bit longer than just a couple of days. Hang a little longer than just a couple of weeks. You know. Really, like... You know, you really want to get to know everybody and say, okay, is this people like I said? Are the the way I would always I tell you guys is. Are these people I would hang out with if it wasn't for this patch? Were these people that I w- that I would go to their families, you know, for dinner and stuff like that? Are these people that I would gel with? And and I was too young and and naive to know that back then, but that definitely throughout the years was something that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So did you ended up joining the Vagos? Yes, correct. Yeah, I was a Vago for just short of two years. And how was that experience? Man, it was cool, you know, so coming from this this old school mentality and, and these old school Oregon ways, you know, when I first started to hang out with the outsiders, they had one guy that had a, um, a night train and they called him Storebot Scott because they all had custom bikes. There was baggers weren't a thing. You couldn't even, you know, they didn't even really want you to have a stock bike back then. And in Reno, there was a lot of, you know, the bagger scene was starting to get a little bit bigger, but still, it still wasn't huge. Um, but, you know, I just started learning a lot more like culturally about the motorcycle scene as a whole outside of Oregon. Um, you know, as a Vago, I was, I was riding to or, or to LA and Northern California. And, you know, me and my brother, you know, he ended up joining the same time I did. Um, he, he ended up moving right after I joined and then joined with me or right before I joined. And so we were those guys, you know, young kids trying to make a name for ourselves. So we went to every event we could and we rode to everything. So we were racking up miles, spending time on the road with different guys and checking out, you know, Los Angeles and Vegas and Sacramento. And so just learned a lot by experience. What was it like having your twin brother with you in the club? It's cool, man. It's really cool because you always have someone there you can depend on no matter what, you know. Um, This was way before club politics or anything got involved in my life, but even just sketchy situations, breakdowns, lost or whatever, I always had someone I could depend on next to me. So that was a huge benefit for my whole life, no matter what it was I was doing. Was it ever... Was it ever kind oh. of a conflict when you had your brother with you? Like, would they be like, oh, you're playing favoritism or any of that kind of shit? Would you ever get any of that? No, not really. I don't. I mean, maybe someone else might say that from their perspective, but I never saw it from my perspective. Right. No. So it In wasn't fact, a problem. I, I was always harder on him than anybody else. So it was probably everyone's probably happy they weren't my brother. Right. <laughs> what were you riding during the Vagos? Um, I had a, a 06 night train and bought it in 05. So it was like, you know, they came out a little year earlier. Um, and I remember because they gave me the option of fuel injected or carbureted and fuel injection other than that old Delphi system wasn't popular yet. And so I was like, I don't want that. I want the carbureted. So it was the first year the night train put that 200 back tire on there. And actually funny story about that is they, they didn't, only the motor was black. Um, and me and an outsider spike, rest in peace. Um, we took, he helped me strip the bike apart. And then we sent it somewhere to get powder coated and I powder coated it 
you know, tip to tip, all matte black. And no one else was really doing that. The Gypsy Jokers were, were had a lot of black bikes. Remember the outsider saying, oh, it looks like a Joker bike. But, you know, now you can go in and buy it just like that. But at the time, I was one of the one guys with like an all blacked out bike. Like it was when I when I pulled into Reno, I got pulled over by the cops because they wanted to know why it was all black and what parts were stolen. Like it wasn't. Yeah. It's, it's funny how quick culture shift, you know, because that wasn't a thing yet. What did you, you know, you said as far as cops pulling you over, what did you learn about? motorcycle profile and why you were in Navagos. Um, yeah, Mike and I were talking about this earlier too, just how different it is on the West coast versus Midwest or other places. But I wouldn't, I didn't realize that till many years later, right. After till I moved, um, coming up in like kind of gang life, we were always pretty anti-authority, anti-cops. So honestly, it wasn't a big shift for me. Um, cause we, you know, because of the way we dressed and we we're all heavily tattooed and stuff, we got treated a certain way by law enforcement, even before club life. Um, I definitely saw it firsthand, but I was, it was something I was already expecting. What do you say to the naysayers within the scene that say it doesn't happen? Uh, police profiling. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely happens. And, and I mean, I guess it depends on where you live, but if you live on the West coast, there's no way you can tell me it doesn't happen or that you haven't seen it because I couldn't tell you, you know, when I was wearing a patch, if I've ever even been pulled over by one cop, you know, it's usually at least several um, yep. they're scared half the time they're scared for their lives or they're being dicks and, and they don't, you know, I'm a respectful and, and polite person, but they don't, it doesn't matter. They've got their hands on their pistols, you know, everything's ready. Absolutely. No, it's, I, I was telling Mooch behind the, the scenes that, that I was not that long ago, you know, of course, because I had a patch on, I got ticketed, literally ticketed for doing three miles per hour over, not like, Hey, warning, like, don't do that again because I just want to harass you kind of thing. No, this cop actually ticketed me for three over. Couldn't believe mm -hmm. it. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't understand when you get in that club and we're still talking about the Vagos here is relationships. How does did it back then? Because you said you were younger. How did it uh, affect relationships that you had? Um, you know, I think one of the benefits was that I just moved to this new area. So a lot of the people I was starting to meet were in that club life or war Vagos. Um, it would have been probably a lot different had I done it in Portland at that time and would, have, you know, spend less time with my old friends, more time with my new friends or was in a serious relationship. Um, so kind of timing of my life worked out pretty well. But again, that's something that I didn't reflect on until many years later. I often tell newer guys coming around, you know, that are already married. It's one thing to be a single guy and join a club and then meet a woman. She's cool with everything and get married versus you're already set in your relationship ways. And now you're going to change everything to be in a club. Right. That's the super hard thing that we've actually spoke about on the show before. It's one thing when, you know, you meet her and you're already involved. She already knows what you're, she's signing up for. It's a little different when all of a sudden you've been in a relationship, let's say five, 10 years. And all of a sudden dude's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to join a motorcycle club. You know? yeah, they're, they're used to you go, you know, your Friday night dinners or Saturday family right. or whatever. They're used to you being home often. And you know, everyone knows once you're in the club life, you're not home that often. So, so was it hard to keep a relationship with a girl going, you know, I, not, I mean, I was single for, I was, I went through a pretty bad breakup right around the time I was joining the Vagos and I stayed single for several years. Um, so, I mean, I guess I would say yes, because I wasn't in a serious relationship up until I'd been in the Mongols for quite a few years. Um, I would just, you know, I'd find girls to hang with or we go to parties with and stuff. But I, I definitely, you know, I was that young kid that was trying to prove myself and my whole focus was on club life. So, yeah, I definitely mm -hmm. wasn't putting a big focus on relationships. By the way, we are now talking to Mooch and he has a new book out uh, 
over on Amazon and all the major, uh, po- or I was going to say podcast, but major uh, online bookstores. It's Ride of My Life, Street Motorcycle. Is that right, Mooch? Yeah. And yeah, the ride, of my, the ride of My Life from street gangs to motorcycle clubs to social worker. There you go right there. So it is on Amazon and it is in the chat room right now. All you have to do is click it and you would be able to get that uh, book right there. Make sure you guys uh, support them if you would. Again, just click on it. And if you're on the radio right now, it's Amazon.com where you can get that title of the book. Moving on from the Vagos, was there a brief break uh, before going to the Mongols? No, not at all. Actually, I uh, I had moved back to Oregon, and so now I was in an Oregon chapter of the Vagos, and I met you know a lot of Vagos I was really getting along with, and it was back to that more Oregon mentality. The Oregon Vagos were a little different than the Nevada ones. There was a lot of older guys, that more kind of biker scene, um, and I had some great friends in it, but same kind of things I'd brought up before, and uh, you know there were there were starting to get some politics involved and some things I didn't like about that club lifestyle and you know i say this with all due respect because they're a much different club now under different leadership but at the time i was in it um we weren't happy with national leadership and my chapter was having issues with another vago chapter and we were sitting down in this meeting discussing where we were going to have to figure stuff out and i was like well man what, what did i sign up for here what i'm about to go to war with another chapter um so i mean i guess war is not the good word but you guys know what i mean and yeah and so you know, we kind of talked about it as a chapter and someone had brought up, Hey man, if, if I ever joined another club, it would be the Mongols. And I happened to know a Mongol then. And just coincidentally at the same time, this is during doc's big recruitment drive, which I didn't know anything about back then. Right. But at the time, the, yeah, the internet was just getting popular and the Mongols had a website and they said, welcome uh, Oregon Mongols. And so I remember reaching out to the Mongols as a Vago and just saying, Hey, you know, I heard that you guys are starting this chapter in Portland and I just, you know, I'd love to meet the guys, show you guys around, you know, see if we can build a connection and uh, I'm sure they knew what I was reaching out for. And it wasn't long before I was sitting down with them and we started talking about patching over. I want to hit uh, China Dowell's uh, question real quick. You were in a movie. What was that movie about? Um, I, she, I, she probably talking about the one from my Instagram where I played a fighter. Is that what she was, the yeah. one she was asking about? Yeah. No, um, some of the guys from my jujitsu team, one of his brothers uh, does movies and they were going through film school and they were looking for uh, guys for an MMA fight scene in the background. So I just showed up and got to fight someone on film. And actually, it's kind of funny because I win the fight on film, but the guy that I'm fighting is actually like a world champion Muay Thai kickboxer, and he would beat the crap out of me in real life. Oh, shoot. Um, I was so, we did like 20 takes, and I was just checking kicks the whole time. I was all bruised and beat up afterwards. So thankfully, he was I a bet. rad dude. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was really cool. It ended up not getting released because um, it was more, you know, I, I think they ended up not having the budget for it or whatever, but I still have the clip of it on my Instagram. It was a really That's cool experience. Cool rock on so you reached out to the mongols how uh did your brothers from the vagos react to something like that well so initially i wasn't going to do it unless our whole chapter was going to do it and we had sat down and our whole chapter said they were on board with it and i was just kind of at the time i was just going to be the go-between i wasn't in any sort of position of leadership at all i was just a regular member um but because i had known some some mongols i was just kind of the go-between um so the Mongols invited me to go out to Biketoberfest in Daytona one year. And I flew out there by myself, which looking back at kind of a crazy move, but I flew yep. out there by myself. The the outlaws had, were having issues with the Vagos at the time over some expansion in a Georgia. And my dumb ass is out there wearing a Vago shirt, just kicking it. Um, I'm hanging out with a bunch of Mongols that I don't know from Adam. And, uh, you know, we go out and end up meeting some outlaws and we kind of, uh, 
kind of got in a sketchy situation and, and it got to a point where the Mongols weren't sure if they were going to get out of there. And they said, Hey man, you're a guest. You don't need to be here. And I said, Hey, I came here with you guys. I'm staying with you guys. And, and I think that went, that went a long way. And so shortly thereafter, they said, Hey, if, if this is what you want to do, you know, we'll green light your chapter. So I went back to Oregon and told them, but by the time I got back, things had changed. Some people wanted to come, some didn't, some guys started thinking, well, if they leave, we yep. can be in leadership. And so it kind of, I'd already given the Mongols my word and I wasn't going to go back on it. So it wasn't a smooth transition, I guess, to answer your question. Uh, let's see here. Uh, we got uh, Douche Canoe. Uh, curious about Mooch's use of the term gang, about his pre-MC life. Not a lot of club members like that term, and it's pretty rare to hear skinheads talking about being a gang. It happens, but rare. You know, the, the gang culture and the skinhead scene and the hardcore scene is actually really big. Um, you know, there's different crew, or maybe they call it crews back then, but you know, everyone, they, their own crew had names. There was often jump-ins. We did weekly meetings. We had positions. Um, and so I think I use the word gang just for lack of a better term so that people can understand it. I wouldn't use that term when I talk about motorcycle clubs for, you know, various reasons. But when it came to like, we were pretty much a street gang other than we weren't making any sort of financial income. But that, that was common back then. I mean, skinhead and, and hardcore gangs. I still, I still hear them used as that term. So that's just me, but yeah, he's not referring anything about MCs or anything like that. What did you find in the Mongols that you didn't find in the Bagos? So, you know, one of the issues I said was, was a, a leadership stuff with uh, Terry, the tramp. And I remember one time uh, at a, at a Vago run and, and their national secretary at the time was a, a dentist and he had all this really nice jewelry and he remember him going, Oh, don't tell tramp that I have this necklace. Cause he'll want it. And he was so like one of those things were like, they, they, it felt I kind of got that Debo vibe, right? Um, Debo not, is coming. I'm not saying it happened, but that was the vibe I got. And when I first met or first party with the Mongols, I saw Doc going around from booth to booth and people were trying to give him shirts. And he said, no, what are my brothers paying? Um, and so, and that went a long way with me. And just the, the you know, the, the word brotherhood is used huge in motorcycle life and all that. And it's you know, overly used, but the Mongols sole focus was on brotherhood. It was the most tight knit, well-organized group of guys that I'd ever been around. And I, I knew I found my home. So, you know, I, I know I'd hopped around a little bit because I know that's the term, right, Club Hopper. But I, when I found my home, I stayed in for almost 15 years. So it, that, it just took me to get to that position. And then I found my spot. And those were my guys. Well, my, uh, Mooch has talked a lot about the Mongols in other interviews. So we'll let those interviews stand for itself. I, I'm really interested in how in the hell did you say to yourself i want to be a social worker yeah so you know i, I when i was um you know i had that charge for trying chasing those cops or whatever and, and um so i'm on probation i'm on five years felony probation and I, even though it was a misdemeanor charge but i'm not allowed to associate with the bongles and anytime i got caught i went back to jail well i was getting caught often well mm -hmm. looking back there's people out in the book too i had some informants in the chapter so they were the cops knew my every move so Every time I violated probation, I was going back to, to jail for one month, two months, three months at a time. And it's like revolving door where it got to the point where, you know, I had to really take an assessment of my life and said, what do I want to do with myself? You know, um, and here I am, you know, I got head and neck tattoos. I'm a felon. I was trying to figure out, you know, what what's a career I can get into. I always wanted to be a teacher since my family were all teachers. And I knew with the criminal record that was kind of off the table. Um and there's um, a Mongol by the name of Richie Rich, who's a PhD in cl clinical psychology, very well spoken, put together dude, but has more tattoos than me, kind of looks like a pretty rough dude. Um, 
And I remember talking to him about it and I was thinking, you know, he's really big into this. If he can do it, I should be able to do it. So I started getting into drug and alcohol counseling. That's what opened the door for me. But then in school, I fell in love with, with psychology and got really into therapy and counseling. So I ended up focusing on social work. On social work. Now, you said you started with drugs and alcohol. And I'm assuming that it was a very dark place with a lot of people in that type of situation. How did you deal with that personally? You know, I didn't, I didn't, right. I didn't care a ton for the drug and alcohol counseling. I think a lot of the people that succeed and do well are recovering addicts. You know, they, they know that lifestyle. Well, they're bought into whatever model that they're, that they're teaching. Um, for me, thankfully, it wasn't anything I've really struggled with before. I obviously had a lot of empathy for it. I understand it. But what I felt like when I got into that world is, first of all, you only had to do two years of school to get into just initially to, you know, drug, drug and alcohol counseling. So there was a lot of other therapists in that field that didn't have a lot of experience. Most of them were te- speaking from personal experience, which isn't something we do in the therapy world once you <laughs> learn more about that. But then the hardest part was just the clients because most of them were court ordered no one wanted to be there. And I just never felt like I was making a positive impact. I mean, I felt more like a probation officer, like, oh, how often have you been doing this or that? Right. Like, just sign me off here. Sign yep. me off here, please. So that that kind of drifted me apart from that world. And then I got into um, counseling perpetrators of domestic violence. And that that's what really, really got me into social work because I love, love doing that. Wow. How hard was it, uh, the switch from all that you've seen in the club world to go into a situation like a social worker would man you know a lot of it is human nature so a lot of that stuff ran pretty parallel i felt like i think with the way i carry myself and and my appearance i kind of put probably put a lot of people at ease when i come in to meet with them or i'm not you know they know i'm not the judgmental like typical therapist so i think it's been a strength for me in a lot of ways i primarily work with uh, teenagers on parole probation so i think that that helps a ton um, but honestly, I think it was a pretty good transition that the, the issue was, you know, in Oregon, the issue was, you know, you have to get all sorts of background checks and clearances to work with kids. Um, and because I had a criminal record, I know some of the law enforcement made it difficult for me to find a job in Oregon, but out here in the Midwest, it, it hasn't been an issue whatsoever. Rock on man. So where you said earlier that you hated the thought of going to college, how the hell did you go through and do you got a bachelor's or what do you got? I have a master's degree. I went to school for eight years. I have a master's degree in Whoa. social work. Um, but yes, yeah, so that first day, you know, I'd been out of school for a few years and I went to this community college and I remember sitting down for the psychology class and I had a spiral notebook and a pen like the old school days and everyone's whipping out laptops and they're talking about PowerPoint presentation. And I just, everything's whizzing by me and I'm like, no way I can't. So I just walked when I decided to go back to school um, was 2008, 2009. I just, 2009, I decided to go back to school. Like I said, I was tired of going to jail and I looked at school as a full-time job. So when I was a kid and I was young, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to go to school. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just kind of taking classes. When I went back to school, this is what I'm doing for a living. It and was so, for a purpose. Exactly. So yeah. I had a, I had a focus and, you know, I ended up at a 4.0 all through jun- junior college and then was on the honors list all through undergraduate and then graduate school. So, I mean, I did really well because I focused on it. I took it as a career. The things that shifted is, like I said, I was initially I was just going to do that two year drug and alcohol counseling, fell in love with psychology, said, F it, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree. Um, and once I got my bachelor's degree, I said, you know, what? I'm a felon with tattoos. I need everything I can go. And it's two more years. So I got my master's degree. How did things change with law enforcement once they seen that you were actually trying to make a positive 
difference. unfortunately in Oregon, it didn't change much at all. Um, so I had one of my first internships was going to be working for the youth authority, the Oregon youth authority and be a counselor for the kids there. And that's, that's the career I wanted. So I was hoping this would be that internship that turned into a job. Um, but unfortunately, so I, they had to get do training for it. So I, you know, I got hired as an intern. They give me the address to this training and I show up and it's the, it's the state police Academy. So you can only imagine how long they let me be in that building for <laughs> <laughs> recognized yeah, and pulled just, out. just go out now just just turn around and uh, you know they pulled me aside and i had to have this interview and they're like hey are you know we have this information you're in this club and i said i absolutely am in this club you know i owned it and i said well i thought it was a strength right but um you know part of it too is my charges in oregon were against law enforcement and you know how that thin blue line brotherhood works um mm -hmm. so I, I think i had that going against me as well but they actually had said that, you know, they thought my goal was to recruit these young teenagers for my criminal street gang, you know, kids that are not old enough to ride motorcycles or own motorcycles. But, you know, that was their, I, they thought I had this grand conspiracy of going to school for eight years and spending a hundred thousand dollars to recruit kids from school. So yeah. they fired, they fired me and I ended up um, hiring an attorney and, and, um, and suing them and, and I won a discrimination lawsuit against Good. them. How Good. How hard. You know what? That is something very interesting, and that's a subject on its own. Mm -hmm. They make it so hard for a felon to rehabilitate themselves. They actually make it to where they reoffend. Absolutely. Right. They, they not only would call places that I was working and say, do you know who's working there? But even when I was getting into martial arts, I went to a Krav Maga school and, I, you know, a lot of cops train that art. I was there for one day and I was all excited. And the next day I got a call saying that the police union was going to boycott this business if they let me train there. Wow. Yeah. And how does, how would a felon get around something like that where they don't lose hope? Well, you know, the positive is, is I was still able to do it right. And if you're not some high profile guy uh, with charges against cops, you probably have a better chance of doing it. But um, I would say for me, I just, you know, like I said, I, I kept my head down and I worked for all the positives. I said, okay, on this side, I've got this criminal record and tattoos, but on this side, I've got this degree and the honor roll and I'm part of this organization. You know what I mean? They just build the positives in your favor and, you know, let, let your accomplishments speak for themselves. Cause eventually that criminal records and be older and older and older. Like my, my felonies from 1999. So now when mm -hmm. I put it on a resume, it's pretty easily explained because it's so long ago, man, I was so four years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Thanks, come bro. on, like, let's, get <laughs> let's get over this, you know, let's get over it. But how, yes, I mean, putting that time and space between the charge, but then showing how you've moved forward since the charge is, is the most important part. How is your support system during college? It was great, man. It was great. So like I said, I have a really tight knit, awesome family. Um, a lot of the brothers were really supportive of me going to school. Like I said, Richie Rich was kind of my mentor and, and he had his PhD. So he was very helpful. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to it, right? My initially undergrad, I started at Whittier College in Los Angeles. So it's a, and which is like a, it's a really good school, but it's like a small liberal arts college. It's a bunch of 18, 19 year old kids. And here I'm at 28, 29, whatever I was 30 when I was there, everyone had to live on campus, but I didn't cause I was too old. <laughs> so, you know, there was that kind of weirdness, but you know, that uh, all the faculty treated me amazing. You know, I got along good. I was in the psychology club. I was the vice president of the psychology club there. Um, wow. so I just, you know, I made connections and, and just kept my head down. Like I said, I took it as a job, so it worked out well. Did this journey start you on to where you were more interested in this part of your life than the club life? Probably not quite yet. Um, but yes, it, it ended up 
once I was really working in the field and really focusing on, on work and stuff, it wasn't necessarily that I was less interested in club life. By then, I'd been doing club stuff for 10, 12 years by now. And I think my priorities were just starting to shift a little bit. Like I said, I was that young kid trying to make a name for myself and I was all in. And I looking back, I was all in for 10 years. And all of a sudden I was all like, wow. In for you know? One thing, one club, you know, you're doing this. And then it's like, all right, now it's like, I got to focus a little bit on. Yeah, me. you know, I was, neglecting, re- was neglecting relationships. I was ne- ne- neglecting a career and, um, and I had to find that balance, you know, and, and I'd been in long enough that thankfully it wasn't too hard for me to figure out, but I did have to really focus on finding that balance. Even after and, something like 12 years or 10 years in the club life, it still can be a terrible time figuring out that balance of club life, home life, friend life. Absolutely. It's almost impossible, you know? And so add a whole bunch of schooling in the mix, add all these things, it's going to be even that much more. So. Yeah, it was a challenge, but it also taught me a lot. Just like I said, when I moved to Nevada, it's taught me, you know, when I'm on my own, what can I do for myself? And so it helped me quite a bit. Did you wish you would have started this journey earlier? So I think about that often, man. And I think about that with jujitsu as well. Where would I be now if I would have started back in, in 2000? But honestly, the type, the person I was then and now are two different people. And like I said, when I first went back to school and I didn't have the focus, I blew it off. So I think I found it at the right time in my life when the focus was right. And that's even the same with jujitsu. I probably, if I would have tried it after high school, because I grew up wrestling and stuff, I probably would have liked it, but I was all focused on the gang stuff. And then biker style would have blown it off. So see, I, I really think you're very, I'm very much like you in this regard that I will focus on one thing and like try to like conquer it and then move on to the next. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm doing six things at the same time. I'm all in on one thing, try to conquer it, move on. You Absolutely. know, that's kind of how I work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I was able, you know, I felt like I was at the right point in my life where I could see what was important and have the correct focus for that right period of time. So had I had I gone to it, had I gone to college straight from high school, I don't think I would have been successful. Right. What got you in the jujitsu? Well, so I got kicked out of that Krav Maga school <laughs> and I was looking for some sort because I was working out. I was getting really into like lifting weights and working out um, and it's fun. But, you know, I was kind of burnt out. I was wanting to find something else. Like I said, I, I grew up playing all sorts of sports and I was really into wrestling most of my life. Um, so I was trying to find some sort of like fighting art or martial art. Um, I wasn't trying to get into MMA or anything. I'm too old to be getting hit in the face a bunch. Um, but, you know, I was wanting to stay in shape, but but learn stuff and have some fun. And um, my buddies kept recommending jujitsu. And because I'm the guy I am, because my friends recommended it, it was like the last of my list. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm going to try all this other stuff for me first. Um, but then the, the head jujitsu uh, instructor in Salem, ended up he, he was from my wrestling team back in high school so we already had a connection and wow. i went and tried one class and i was hooked how was jiu-jitsu helped you in your work as a social worker you know what's really really cool about jiu-jitsu is it humbles anybody um you can mm-hmm. go in there thinking you're a big tough guy and uh, a little scrawny nerdy guy can wad you up and you know <laughs> show you're not good at shit and and there's so many different levels to it as far as strength and technique and, you know, respect, you know, teaches you the respect of the older guys and, you know, listening to your professors and all the stuff that translates to real life, like giving experience to those people who have been doing it longer, hearing input and trying different things. And then I think the biggest part is you're in a lot of bad situations that are terrible and you think that I'm stuck here and you have to have that mental talk with yourself of like, hey, two more minutes and this round's over. Or if I want to get out of this bad position, I'm the only one that can get myself out of this that type of stuff is what translates to real life, like being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of discipline, you Absolutely. know, that you, you, you're teaching yourself or being taught at the same time while you're on the mat, essentially. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. A lot of internal toughness and discipline for sure. Yeah. By the way, we're talking to Mooch. Uh, he is has a new book out. It, it's available on Amazon and all the major uh, retailers that sell books. Mike's going to put the link over in the chat room right now. Yeah, yep. he's got it up right now. And it's there, and also it's in the description of the video. If you guys are watching the playback, just remember it's in the description of both of our videos. And you can check out his Instagram as well below. What makes you a better social worker than say some of your peers you know i think a lot of it is just that real life experience you know you can only read so much about different things and um like i said with the drug and alcohol counseling because i never was technically had gone through life as an addict i could empathize with it but i couldn't always understand all of it right um, and mm -hmm. I, I think a big thing for me not only of being able to understand the struggle but to understand how the legal system works and how to understand what it's like you know to go against the legal system as a felon um, how to get social services, how to get help. Those types of things are things that I physically experienced and went through. And then I feel like because of that, I'm a strong advocate for those that are needing it now. What would you say to law enforcement that has messed with you and messed with your attempt to go positive with because of something happened in 1999? What would you say to them now? Where you know, you I... I think it's it's pretty funny that these anti-gang cops need to really look at themselves and see how much of a gang that they likely are too. If you're holding on, you know, if I if, if I'm breaking the law and I get arrested, I have it coming and that's how life works. But if you're holding on to an old grudge and trying to stop someone from getting gainful employment, push I mean essentially what are you trying to push me into to you know criminal stuff? Um then I you know if you're holding grudges and you're using your power against somebody, um I think you might want to look at yourself and see, you know, which one's the real criminal. Wow. Powerful. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's unfair. You know, it, the system is really built for you to be stuck and stay inside of it. You know, absolutely. look at, look at five years of federal probation. I mean, there are a lot of people that just smoke normal weed. Let's just say, for instance, just not even for medical reasons. Yep. And they'll go, they'll be sent right back to, to jail, prison, whatever, all because, of smoking a little bit everything is designed for you to fail in that and and how you can't get housing can't get employment you can't get an apartment like where the hell are you supposed to go like how are you and, supposed to make and it? at that same time your stipulations are that you have a full-time job that you have somewhere to live but no one's helping you do that you know nope. and i think that's where social work really bridges the gap so we can help those people find th those types of things and, and try and help out where, where law enforcement and just society in general is lacking did wow. is that the idea? Did you get that kind of idea about starting? Uh, I think your organization or movement now is Lift Train Ride. Is that the kind of thinking that came out of it? Yeah, you know what? My last few years in the club, um, you know, I was still in a, a regional position, so I was kind of overseeing some other chapters, and I was really trying to focus on the positives. You know, I'm I'm sure you guys have heard me say before, but. I was always that guy that when I first came around clubs, I was told, hey, you know, you're going to lose everything. If you want to join this club, you're going to lose everything. You know, your, your old lady's going to leave you. You're going to get a criminal record. And I remember thinking, how can I call this guy brother and then bring him into something that's going to make him lose everything? So I was always trying to, you know, I got to this point where I'm trying to build some positive. I wanted someone to say, oh, I joined this club and my life got better. Not ever since I joined this club, club everything got worse. Um, and so I instituted a, a rule where it was by vote, but the region instituted a rule where everyone had to work out at least three days a week. 
um, you know, there was a national rule that everyone had to have a full-time job. And so we were really just kind of pushing like this more positive, like, you know, we were tight knit, but that was the whole point of brotherhood, right? Like what, what can help each other as brothers. And so when I left the club world behind, I wanted to keep a lot of that stuff. I knew, you know, I wanted to stay away from the politics and the stuff that I didn't like, but I wanted to keep the positive stuff. And so that live, try and ride, ride came out of that. It was several guys that used to be in clubs and some guys that weren't, but it was the boiled down essentials of what makes motorcycle club fun, riding bikes, going to parties, you know, going on long trips, you know, the, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, but then the positive focus of, yeah, but we're also going to hold you accountable that everyone has to be working out. If we have an issue, we need to sit down and talk it out right away. You know, just kind of putting that mental health part, you know, to the forefront. Well, steel sharpened steel. Right. And that's, it sounds like that you never deviated from that. You know, it's kind you, of funny, I guess, it. looking back, having a therapist in your chapter, I bet would look funny to any sort of federal wiretap because you'd sit in there in a room full of alpha males and hear the Sarge go, yeah, but when you said this, it made me feel like this. You know <laughs> yeah, I mean? for real. Which, which is, it's <laughs> funny, but it made us all so much tighter, you know, and we got along so much better. Yep. We're yep, going to be I taking some it. audience questions now. Uh, we've had Mooch uh, on for a while, so uh, we're going to take uh, you guys' questions uh, before we wrap it up. Do she asked, did uh, Mooch have any problems getting scholarships or student loans as a felon? Actually, no, I didn't. I, I, I got a lot of scholarships, but a lot of them, they were uh, merit based off of how I did in junior college, you know, in community college. Um, but no, there's there's a box you have to check. And I know if you have like some sort of crim uh, drug related charges or financial related charges, it could affect you. But my charges have all been violent in nature, so it didn't affect me at all. Wow. That's good stuff right there. Uh, how do you feel about the student loans? Because everybody has to pay them back. Uh, do you think? Yeah, I mean, dude, a it's a catch-22. I understand the mindset of, hey, you know, you use the money, go to school, so you need it. But I also, being a social worker, I'll tell you, you we can't even hire people in my field or what I do now without a master's degree. So you're asking someone to spend 100 to 150K in student loans to start out in a career that starts at 30K. So you've got to really like what you're doing. And it's going to be harder and harder to get people in that field if if we're holding stuff like that over their head do you think in a country like this that education should be free to its citizens kind of like a lot of other countries do because of the taxes that we pay absolutely and i think you know there's plenty of money out there for it and on top of that what it brings to our culture and our society right a more educated society is better for everybody and then like i said to fill those positions the teachers and the firefighters and and uh, social workers you know you don't get paid a big living but you end up spending a lot in education and it doesn't seem like a very fair balance it's really good for us as citizens but it's not good for our government right for us to be you know up here up top having some knowledge that's what they don't want that's Absolutely. what I get from all of this. You know what I mean? That they don't want us to be educated. There's that. And then there's just the monetary value of, of giving 18 year olds big loans that they can't ever get out of. You know, there's, it's, there's it's a, lot a business. It. It's a dirty business. We're, uh, we're uh, talking to Mooch right now. The ride of my life from street gangs, the motorcycle clubs to social workers. I think the last question that I would ask you, Mooch is, where is your journey going from here? Man, that's a good one. I'm just, you know, I, I'm really hoping, you know, I didn't put this book out to try and get rich by any means. I, I really think I really just hoping to get my story out there enough to maybe open some other doors, make some other connections and just kind of see where life takes me. Um, you know, I, I answer everybody on social media. I've got this book out where I think has a positive message. And I really my goal is to help, you know, kind of guide others that may be lost or need help. 
um, people that were in the same position as me and just see how I can help other people. So honestly, as long as I could stay active and talk to people and, and help others, that's, that's where I plan on being. You're not moving your acting career up. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. You're hoping that they turn the book into a movie, man. I mean, that would be cool. Right. I think that's everyone's goal when you write a book, but <laughs> yeah, right. Netflix we'll documentary next, you know? Yeah. That yeah, would anything be awesome. that brings my story to the forefront, if it can help others, man, that's my goal. Good that's deal. Right. Well, we uh, appreciate having Mooch on the show again. It is the ride of my life. Uh, it's from street gangs to motorcycle clubs to social workers, and it is available on Amazon or any online uh, book retailer. Is it in Kindle right now? And I know you're working on an audio portion. Yeah, it is, it is in Kindle, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of any of those online retailers. There is the the ebook version through Kindle, and then I'm, we're working on the audio version right now. Um, but as we kind of talked about, it's a little bit of a, a journey there, so it might be a little bit before the audio book's out. Right, rock on. Yep. Well, I appreciate having you on, Mooch. It was a killer one. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation about your struggle to get where you're at right now against all odds with these uh, law enforcements, the government and stuff. And uh, what I really got out of it was don't let them uh, keep you down and just keep on moving forward. Right. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. Rock thank you, Mooch, for real. We'll talk to you later, Mooch. Uh, great show, Mikey. You learned a lot here with a guy like Mooch. It, that's like, why I love sitting here. And, and you, you ask a lot, Hollywood, like, hey, why are you sitting back, you know, listening so much? Why are you not asking? Listen, man. I love sitting here and, and being, being a sponge and being able to soak in all of the knowledge that, that a lot of you guys have. I mean, how, that's how I get my knowledge too, is by listening to you guys. And it's, so it's an honor for me to be on the show even, you know, so much Rock love. On, man. Well, everybody will talk to you later. Uh, don't forget motorcycle madhouse in the morning. We'll catch you all later. Rock on baby. Uh, you know what? I got to find us an ending, man. I got to find us an ending. We'll screwed, make a new one. You already screwed up the beginning. No,